Greetings fellow time travellers, great to have you with me as always as we travel together through space and time. Uh, Before we kick off today's episode I just want to give you a bit of news about a new competition I'm running on my patreon.com site. Uh, The competition prize, prizes, well it's personalised copies of my new book which is called Hauntings, a book of ghosts and where to find them and three copies are up for grabs. And if you want to enter the competition, if you want the chance of getting a personally signed copy of that brand new hardback book go to patreon.com look for me by name part with a bit of cash you know the drill you can pay monthly or you can pay for the year and it's cheaper if you sign up for the whole year we have competitions from time to time we do question and answer sessions we do i do weekly exclusive content so come along and join um it'd be great to have you there Great to have you as part of the wider family. Okay, that's the advert over. Time now to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. An ugliness in the soul of humanity. Treating others as property is a crime that's been staining human history for thousands of years and no one's hands are clean. In the 18th century, Britain became slavery's ultimate practitioner. But many brave souls found their voice to oppose it. Born into slavery in Jamaica, an eloquent and passionate man calls for action. And as many as 60,000 of his fellows rise up in rebellion. Morning, Neil. Last week we marked a momentous landmark when the number of Homo sapiens on this big blue planet of ours hit one billion. Where are we this week? Hello, Paul. Well, this week, it's all about people. It's all about all people. But we're travelling to a dark time and a dark place. Slavery, in one form or another, has been with us, with our species. It might have been with us from the beginning. But in the 18th century, there was a new and terrifying intensity about its potential. This week, we're meeting a man born into slavery whose unbending resolve, powerful intellect and ultimate sacrifice helps the fight against slavery. We're in Jamaica, walking with Samuel Sharp. Today, our attentions are kind of split either side of the Atlantic Ocean. We'll be spending some time thinking about the Palace of Westminster and the British Parliament. It will also be in the Americas, uh, specifically in the colonies, uh, because we're we're contemplating the Atlantic slave trade. A couple of centuries it runs across, in truth, uh, where Britain uh, was up to its neck in slavery, enslaving people of African origin, black African people. And it depends what you read. It's estimated that across the... Across the period, something like 12 million men, women and children uh, were moved from the African continent to to the North American continent to become uh, slaves on the plantations there. It becomes almost more important every day to pay attention to the fact that the light that's presently turned on the British slave trade must not be allowed to 
obscure or cast into the, the shadow of invisibility the real truth about slavery, which is that for as long as anyone can track, human beings have enslaved other human beings. Slavery, the enslaving of fellows whenever somebody gets the chance, has been a shadow, a, a travelling companion throughout time. You know, as a species, we have been hand in hand with slavery for for forever. You might as well say one civilization after another, all the way back to when the earliest record of any civilization. So that would be Mesopotamia in the old world. Civilization there, the infrastructure and the rest of it, the hard work was done on the backs of enslaved people. And from that point on, an unbroken line of enslaving by white, by black, by brown. Every people, every creed has practiced slavery upon whatever group it was able to get the upper hand with at any given moment. So it's it's there in the old world, it's there throughout Asia, it's in Africa, it's in Europe and it's in the Americas. North America, South America and Middle America, Mesoamerica. And at the moment, and this might be the most important point of all, uncounted millions of people live today in conditions and circumstances that are slavery by any other name. People uh, rightly point out the difference between modern slavery and what's called chattel slavery, which is where people were actually bought and sold as uh, as property. You know, there was, a, there was a price on someone's head and you, you paid the price and you owned that person. And you had life and death power over their existence. That's chattel slavery. But the enslaving that's happening in the modern world is not quite the same. But I would contend that there will be people who are being bought and sold as chattel. But when you look at things like the slavery in, in the, say, for example, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where, where the kids, as well as adults, are, are in those mines digging out cobalt, they're living like slaves, any way you slice it. And, and in many, many circumstances, in every corner of the world, people, invisible people, people who have fallen through cracks in the system, exist as slaves, told what to do and when to do it by people that have absolute power over their existence. So that's the context for today's story. Slavery is humanity. It's what humanity does. And it's still what we do. The, the willingness and the determination to treat others as property is an ugliness in the soul of the human animal. It just is. In relatively recent times, say the last half a millennium, as soon as the Europeans arrived in the Americas, and it was you know, notably the Spanish and the Portuguese, when they arrived in the Middle and South America, they right away set about enslaving the locals. But it wasn't a new concept. The, 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 the peoples, the indigenous peoples of, of those Americas, they knew what slavery was because they practised it as well on their neighbours and always had. So, you know, the populations of the Americas, North, South and Meso, had all made slaves, had all made use of slaves. Then and then, when we get to the nub of today's love letter to the world, famously and infamously, the British spent a couple of centuries perfecting slavery, you know, raising it to, to, to levels which had hitherto not been possible. And it, it happened for most British people 
the enslaved people existed out of sight and out of mind. People were not operating as slaves in Britain, but they were enslaved in the colonies in North America. And that was part of the problem, I suppose. You know, people couldn't see it. They knew about it, maybe. Maybe they didn't. Large, you know, large, large tranches of the population would have been none the wiser. So that's part of the problem. It was easy to turn a blind eye to it because people literally couldn't see it. But that, of course, cannot and does not disguise the fact that millions of African men, women and children were swallowed whole by a hellish system. And that, you know, that, that slavery, that system of slavery is a dreadful stain on our history. It's just that every civilization is stained in the same way at one point or another. And it's also true that for as long as Britain was involved in the slavery business, there were those in Britain who knew it was wrong and said so. There were always those who said, we ought to know by now that we shouldn't be doing this to fellow human beings. And as a consequence, on the 25th of March, 1807, uh, Parliament finally passed the abolition of the Slave Trade Act. Now, this was, a, this was an early step, incomplete, imperfect, inadequate step towards the eventual abolition of slavery itself. But in that first instance, what was passed, the legislation that went through Parliament by a vote of 283 to 16, as it happens, made it illegal to buy and sell those who were already enslaved. And, and at that point in the Americas, in North America, there were something like maybe 700,000, three quarters of a million people living as slaves. But for them, nothing changed. They had been slaves before the act and they were slaves after the act was passed. All that happened meaningfully was that they couldn't be bought or sold anymore. So they couldn't, they, they couldn't change hands. Where they were was where they had to stay. And there was to be no more enslaving. But those who were slaves, nothing happened for their good. Nothing happened to their benefit. In any event, which is, which is darker really, subsequent to the passing of the 1807 Act, Britain acquired new territory in South America, where slavery had been the norm and was still the norm, and blind eyes were turned to the truth of that situation in those new territories. So, all, all I suppose you can reasonably say is that after a long period of minority voices saying what was true and what was obvious, that this was wrong, at least by 1807, it had taken a step. There was an acknowledgement that this was wrong, but it wasn't enough. Of course it wasn't enough. So, when it comes to, say, moments, you know, this is always about moments, significant moments in time. And I, I would say that a significant moment in the story actually happened in 1801, so six years before the Act was passed. A man called Samuel Sharp was born into slavery in the parish of St. James on the island of Jamaica. Okay, so he starts out his existence as a slave. He's a bright man. Uh, he learns to read and write. He joins the local Baptist church, so he's sort of raised in the Christian faith, if you like, as a slave, and eventually becomes a deacon of that church. And he was, he was a passionate and inspirational speaker 
and preacher. And people listened to him and remembered what he said. He had a way with words and what he said resonated with ever-growing numbers of those who heard him. So if we fast forward then to 1831, so he's, he's about 30 years of age, and he reads. He reads newspapers when he can get his hands on them. And he and others like him, uh, amongst the enslaved community in Jamaica, were reading about the campaigning that was going on back in Britain for the abolition of slavery. You know, things had moved on. 1807, the immediate buying and selling of existing slaves was, was terminated. But the campaigners, the so-called abolitionists, did not stop at that point. And you know, the next generation came through that, that continued to say, no, this is not enough, this is not good enough. And people like Samuel Sharp were reading about it. But the fact of the matter is, was almost inevitably a kind of Chinese whispers situation evolved, whereby, as well as the facts of the matter, rumours were spreading. And people were talking excitedly that emancipation was imminent. It got ahead of the facts. But more and more people in Jamaica, amongst the enslaved, were, were saying to one another, this is it, we're about to be freed. But it was premature. But it was in that confused uh, time of hope that Samuel Sharp became involved with plans for a strike, a downing of tools. In Jamaica, the sugar crop, which was the industry there upon which everything was based, and you know the fact that you could get free manpower made it very profitable, the harvest was brought in around Christmas time. And Sharp was amongst those who suggested to his followers that they should down tools, they shouldn't take part, they should refuse to take part in that harvest of 1831. It was in protest at, at the very concept of slavery. But what, what he had in mind was peaceful protest. He just wanted them to kind of not work. Simple as that. Sit down, not take part. But the rumour mill was still turning Word of the nature of the strike reached the ears of the plantation owners and they began to make preparations in advance of that. And, and well, soldiers were readied. Soldiers were prepared uh, and stationed, around, particularly around the parish of St James, which was Samuel Sharp's parish, and it was, it was in there. That was the kind of the root of a lot of the, the simmering discontent. And warships, British warships, were, were readied in, in Montego Bay, Everyone's heard of Montego Bay in Jamaica. So everyone knew that something was about to happen, but it was it was unclear exactly what. And so then the moment, I suppose, the, the crucial moment in the whole sad story was on the 28th of December, the house of a plantation owner was set alight. Someone put the torch to a slave owner's home. And in that instant, any hopes by Sharp and others that there could be a peaceful protest, well, that went up in flames with everything else, and things quickly got bloody. There then followed, from the 28th of December, a week of seven or eight days of open rebellion, and it got worse and worse. Eventually, around 60,000 slaves had, had risen, and it was fighting, fighting back and forth between the owners and the enslaved. By the end of it, by the time the rebellion was uh, crushed. 200 slaves were dead, but 
around a dozen whites were also dead, which sounds like a relatively small number, but in the context, it, it made all the difference. And the attitude there and then was to crush it, absolutely destroy any notions of rebellious behaviour. And so over the next very short while, hundreds of slaves were convicted of rebellion and hanged, put to death. And then, and then, in a, in a gruesome and contemptuous touch, their bodies were beheaded and their heads were displayed on spikes around the plantations. So it was as barbaric and as ugly as, as you could really comprehend. And Sharp, Samuel Sharp, the preacher, who had only wanted a peaceful protest, but whose wishes had been overwhelmed by the rising tide of rebellion, Sharp was the last to die. He was saved for last. And on the night before he was hanged, and the night before the same fate befell him, he gestured through the bars of his cell, and he said, I would rather die upon yonder gallows than to live in slavery. And 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 so he did. And believe it or believe it not, his owners uh, received £16 in compensation for the loss of their property. So Samuel Sharp having been executed, his owners were compensated for the loss of a, of a valuable belonging. It's gone down in history as the Christmas Rebellion and it lit a fire, metaphorically speaking, under Parliament back in London because the the crude violence, the, the obscene nature of the violence in the aftermath of the rebellion was an affront to many people who regarded themselves as part of civilised society. And so, you know, all that beheading and that medieval display of, of, of severed heads on spikes, questions were asked and inquiries, official inquiries were undertaken to see exactly how this sequence of events had unfolded. And and the the abolitionists by this point, by the early 1830s, were in the ascendant in Parliament. You know, they had the bit between their teeth, so to speak, and the wind was at their backs and it the end of slavery was coming. And, well, the Necessary Act outlawing slavery was passed in 1833 and it came into force in 1834. You know, it took a while to process the paperwork, I suppose. But, but and it is a big but, even at that, the slaves were not freed in any meaningful sense. They were no longer property. That, that much is true, but they had nowhere to go and they had nothing and no one was about to give them anything. And so for years, those who had been slaves, they basically just existed as unpaid so-called apprentices. Their penury, the fact that they had nothing, was perpetuated in a, in a kind of a... in what must have been a, an utterly heartbreaking uh, period of time. You know, they were notionally freed, but it didn't make any material difference to the nature of their existence. And furthermore... Uh, the, the decision was taken to compensate the owners. They had all lost tens, sometimes hundreds of slaves that they had bought and paid for, and the attitude was taken by the British government that they ought to be compensated for loss. And the British Treasury, in 1837, took out what still stands as the biggest loan in history. The biggest loan in history. 
it was the equivalent of hundreds of billions of pounds, maybe more. It's always hard to really quantify those, you know, between what was happening in the 1830s and what was ha- what's happening now. But it, it was hundreds of billions anyway, and it was only finally paid off by taxpayers in 2015. It, it took until, you know, a week ago on Tuesday, so to speak, before the debt was settled by taxpayers living and working today. But it's also, it is, it is important, it matters to mention that in, in 1808, so before the final emancipation of slaves, in the aftermath of that first act, barring the buying and selling of slaves, the, the Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy established the West Africa Squadron. So it's a fleet of ships manned with sailors whose duty it was, whose job it was to patrol well, the Atlantic in the main, but to patrol the world ocean and to apprehend anyone flouting the ban on slavery. Because Britain, in her wisdom, decided that what Britain had decided for Britain was, was true for everyone. They were going to stop anyone taking part in this you know, transatlantic slave trade. And by the time the West Africa Squadron was disbanded, which was in 1860, so after decades of service... Something like 150,000 slaves, or would-be slaves, had been freed from something like 1,600 illegal slave ships. So the West Africa Squadron was busy in the in the business of intercepting those who were flouting the law and trying to perpetuate the the slave trade. And and during that time, 2,000 Royal Navy sailors died in the job of stopping slavery. A two-century snapshot of slavery, the slavery that Britain got involved with, but it's only a part of a long story, without beginning and without end, of human beings enslaving one another. And as I mentioned before, it's still with us. You, you know, people are still enslaved. You know, there are there are grounds for thinking there might be more people living lives of of a kind of slavery than ever before, because there are more of us. And there's no there's no avoiding the extent to which it's a stain on all of humanity. For long before the British were involved in, in the African slave trade, the Muslim world was up to its neck before and after enslaving African people, also enslaving white people that were harvested and collected from the coasts of Europe. Over a million between the 1600s and the 1800s. And the slaves that were taken by those people, the Barbary Corsairs and and by the Ottoman Empire, you know, the men were castrated. And the women, any babies born to enslaved women of that empire, where children were sired by, you know, their owners, those babies were put to death at birth. And so there are no descendants of that slave trade. There are no descendants because steps were taken to ensure that there would be none. And that's just one. Mesopotamia, Persia, Greece, Rome, when the Europeans were in North America and they expanded into the West, the West, and they found the indigenous populations there, tribes uncounted, all different from one another, different cultures, different languages, different religions. Slavery was there. 
Those tribes were enslaving other tribes. It's just everywhere. Slavery is human nature, and human nature is to enslave. And it's still with us, and it likely always will be. The most dangerous man in Britain, born and raised in a world where educated people believe in the creation story, he travelled to a continent whose journey north had taken 200 million years. He found an extraordinary creature. His intrepid exploration was destined to change humankind's understanding of itself and thereby the story of the world. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to exclusive videos every week, sign up to my neiloliverpatreon.com site. I'd love to see you there. I have a new website address, an easy one for a complicated time. It's neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for merchandise related to the podcast series. There's t-shirts and mugs and hoodies and all of that. And you'll find the details on my website and attached to this podcast. My Instagram account with great daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is the Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it. Get them listening and maybe write a review to get the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. The post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. podcast's production. <laughs>